0: Hello, my name is Lisa. I'm from the Five O'Clock Congregation, and I'm going to be doing the Bible reading. So if you'd like to join with me, you can grab your Bibles and open up to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 2, and I'll be starting in verse 11. So hopefully you've got your Bibles. And 1 Peter, chapter 2, from verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority Fear God, honour the emperor.
1: Well, hi there today. My name's Scott. I'm one of the ministers here at St Matthews. And good news, today I'm going to tell you who to vote for as a Christian, because in any given election, there's only really one single Christian way to cast your ballot. Of course, I'm just mucking around with you but your reaction to that opening statement probably reveals a bit about your general disposition towards politics. Some of you might have been delighted. This is excellent, you say. I need someone to do the thinking for me. To be honest with you, I spend more time thinking about what time of day to go to the polling centre to avoid the queues than I do about the issues at hand. Others of you might still be delighted, so long as I nominate your party of preference. If I say that Christians should vote Conservative or something like the, the Liberal Party or the Church is the Liberal Party at worship, you might be delighted too. Although that bit about the Church being the Liberal Party at worship is pretty weird. Of course you might not be delighted because you might think that Jesus would definitely have voted Labour. After all, he always sided with the little guys, the working folks, not the ruling elites. But you've got to admit, it's interesting how apolitical Jesus was when others tried to draw him into politics. So if there isn't one single Christian way to vote, how do we engage in the world of politics in a Christian kind of way? And I don't mean how do we work out who to vote for. I mean, how do we respond to our governments? How do we express a Christian worldview politically? How do we express our Christian views publicly at the dinner table or over social media in a manner befitting our love for the Lord Jesus? Well, friends, that's what we're thinking about today in the first of our Holiday Hotspot series on the topic of politics. And so today I want to suggest four general approaches that we should adopt towards our governments, and then suggest four things to help us be better at politics. But before the four approaches and the four improvements, there are two tensions that I think we need to keep in mind. And the first tension Is that we're really living between two ages between the now and the not yet that is jesus has inaugurated the kingdom of god in his earthly life death and resurrection but it's not yet here in its completeness or fullness not everything is as it ought to be evil is still prevalent and and so in many ways the role of human government is about creating social order uh, helping people restraining evil maybe even making choices between the lesser of two evils rather than presiding over a perfect society. And this means as Christians we don't confuse this world with the kingdom of God or somehow think that we can usher in the kingdom of God into this world politically. You might remember what Jesus said to Pilate on the morning of his execution. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. He will bring his kingdom when he returns So we don't try to force it now politically. Rather, we we point to it through our word and our witness. We live in the now and the not yet. The kingdom of God has commenced, but only Jesus will bring it in its fullness when he returns. So that's the first tension we live in. I um, have only lived in three cities in my lifetime, Brisbane, Brisbane that's not a picture of Brisbane, by the way, Sydney and London, Brisbane, Sydney and London. And so when I was living in the UK, I could legitimately answer the question, where are you from? With all three of those cities, born in Brisbane, raised in Sydney, living in London. And actually, in point of actual fact, my answer did vary. When I was traveling on the European continent, I could say that I was from London, uh, unless I was traveling through a country that hated the English, which uh, is pretty much every country on the European continent. Uh, And so then I would say that I was from Sydney. Unless I was travelling through a country that hated the English and I met someone from Queensland, in which case I'd say that I was from Brisbane and we'd all get on like a house on fire. Now, the second tension that we live with overlaps a bit with the first tension, and that is that we're citizens of two cities, if you like. We're already citizens of heaven. That's a present reality, says the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3. He says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet it's equally true that we are citizens of this earthly city, Sydney in our case. I have my Australian passport, so while my citizenship is in heaven, I still live on the ground here in Sydney, and part of my job as a Christian in this city is to work for the good of the city. I must make a contribution to its welfare and its flourishing. I must attend to the needs of the vulnerable and secure just social structures in ways that are open and available to me. I can't just ignore my place or hide from my responsibility as a citizen of this city, Sydney, Australia. And so you can see that Those tensions aren't problems that we're going to solve, are they? They're really tensions that we manage and live in the midst of. We live in the overlap of the ages. The kingdom is now, but not yet. And we live as citizens of two places, heaven and Sydney, or whatever city you're living in. And so how do those tensions play out in the way we approach our governments? I'm so glad you asked that question. I'm going to suggest four main approaches to government that I've largely borrowed from a a Christian ethicist in Canberra called Andrew Cameron and I reckon a place like Canberra needs Christian ethicists. Anyway, the first approach is one we call cooperation. Cooperation and surprisingly this is the default position for the Christian in relation to ruling authorities. You might recall this when we looked at the book of Ecclesiastes a few weeks ago When we heard that repeated instruction obey the king obey the king we see it throughout the the new testament as well whether it's jesus saying render unto caesar what is caesar's and give to god what is god's or someone like the apostle peter saying in 1 peter chapter 3 submit yourself to the lord's uh, for the lord's sake to every human authority Whether to the emperor as supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. Show proper respect to everyone, love the family of believers, fear God, honour the emperor. Well, the Apostle Paul says something uh, strikingly similar in Romans chapter 13. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. So give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honour, then honour. And so that really is the default position that we as Christians have towards governments. We obey them and honour them, even if we disagree with them, even when their decisions seem anti-Christian to us, even when they're personally hostile towards the gospel. And praise God that at this moment, in this country, we don't have state and federal leaders who are hostile to the gospel. But even if our leaders are hostile, and they certainly were in the New Testament era, the general statement by Jesus and the apostles is to subject ourselves to their rule. And remarkably, both the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul say that governing authorities have been instituted by God. And so cooperation is the default position. But when I say it's the default position... I'm not saying that it's the the only posture we as Christians hold towards our governments. If it's the only posture we have, then we will stand by on the sidelines, nodding in approval at the worst excesses of governments and regimes. And that kind of approach saw the Christian and the Catholic churches not only watch on as Hitler's Nazis bulldoze their way into power, it effectively accommodated and supported the appalling treatment of the Jews in Nazi Germany. Not a great witness. Not our finest hour. And so, what other postures, what other approaches do we need to have in our kind of kit bag? Well, subversion is the next approach. Subversion. And I really like the idea of subversion because it sounds naughty, but in a nice kind of way. Subversion is uh, the way in which you might challenge a process or a system or a structure by contradicting, contradicting it, and, and usually peacefully. I mean, think kind of Daniel in the Old Testament. He, he, he was within a sphere of influence, uh, within the inner circle of the Babylonian king, but he doesn't lead an armed uprising against Babylon. He cooperates with the regime, but continues to keep his religious practices and his integrity In other words, he doesn't become a sellout, and the positive impact of his life deeply impacts the king. Uh, In fact, Daniel outlives the king of Babylon. So in our society, when government or citizen acts out of vengeance, the Christian acts out of forgiveness. When government or citizen speaks of despair, the Christian speaks of hope. When government or citizen acts out of austerity, the Christian responds with generosity. We subvert the government, not violently, but we challenge a process or a system or a structure with appealing forgiveness and grace and hope and contentment and generosity. Well, that's subversion. The next approach that we need in our toolkit, as far as it concerns engaging with governments and rulers is exposure exposure and exposure means we call things out that are evil or that are faulty we kind of expose their error or their severity or their injustice now I should uh, reiterate this is not the default position or posture of the New Testament so it ought not to be our default posture towards governing authorities either perennially always criticizing them you don't see much of that in the New Testament Although Jesus didn't mind calling out hypocrisy where he saw it. And you might remember in the Old Testament, it was really the prophets who were fond of railing against injustice within the covenant nation of Israel. But there are times when subversion just isn't enough and we need to become more vocal, more assertive, perhaps even aggressive in our speech and in our complaint. But here's the thing. Exposure requires us to have very clear discernment and wisdom. And most of the time, most of us don't. So there's a genuine warning there before we jump up on our high horses. Some people might object and say, well, why should we as Christians impose our view on others? And I'm sure you would have heard this. But we're not imposing as much as we are exposing. We are airing our hopefully sanctified, considered opinions respectfully on what will lead to a flourishing society, just as every citizen is encouraged to do. And if you think about that whole imposing thing, that's kind of what governments do they impose a decision upon the population at large and that decision will be arrived at with regards to lots of factors, many opinions. Some will be motivated by purely secular views, some by religious views. Most often though, it'll be a combination of views and factors and opinions that lead to a decision. I rather think that our dangerous Christians is not so much about imposing our views on others, it's that we're too afraid or too timid or too lazy to expose that which is wrong in our, in our culture or that which is wrong in our governments. Well, that's exposure. The fourth and last approach to government goes just a bit further than exposure, and that is what you might call separation from government. And by that, I don't mean we just kind of retreat into holy huddles and homeschooling Separation might mean we disobey government directives when they require us to disobey God. We're effectively saying this bunch of rules of the government don't apply to us. We are separating from them, not just because we don't like them, but because they directly contradict a higher law that applies to us that is the Word of God. Now that's what the apostles did at the start of Acts in the New Testament. You remember they were instructed to stop preaching the gospel and they said we must continue. Uh, We must obey God rather than mankind. But we do not separate or disobey lightly as Christians. Uh, We ought not to do it often. It really is a last resort for us. And we would do it fully expecting to suffer whatever punishment our government dishes out for such civil disobedience. But it is part of the kit bag of responses we need to have in terms of our approaches to political life in our country. Our default posture is cooperation, but there's also subversion, exposure, and perhaps even separation. Well, time for a joke. How did we know that communism was doomed right from the beginning? Was because of all the red flags, wasn't it? Get it? Red flags? Uh, I heard Donald Trump wants to ban the sale of pre-shredded cheese. It's because he wants to make America great again. (laughs) Now, I said I wouldn't um, make Trump jokes. uh, So this actually isn't a joke. I did hear last year, um, President Trump said, I think it was last year, he actually said, no politician in history, and I say this with great surety, has been treated Worse or more unfairly? He does know that Lincoln and Kennedy got assassinated, right? Anyway, I don't approve of political jokes. Um, Too many of them get elected, don't they? I, um, I reckon it's the easiest thing in the world to poke fun at politicians. My question is, can there be a better way for us to do politics than just make cheap shot jokes at their expense. Well, I've got uh, four quick suggestions for us today, and I'm sure there's many more. Um, But the first suggestion is to not expect too little or too much. When we make jokes about politicians, what we're really saying is that we think they're stupid, or at least not as smart as us, and they're only in it for what they can get out of it. And I don't think either of those things are true in most cases, in our country. It cannot make their jobs easier when they are so routinely reviled. And so let's not expect too little from them. And I think that will cause us, that will lead us to pray for them, as we are instructed to in 1 Timothy chapter 2, as we often do at St Matthew's, rather than belittle them with our usually fairly unfunny jokes. Of course, on the flip side, we can think too much of them and we expect them to be across every level of detail on every matter of policy all the time, whilst we look for sneaky opportunities to catch them out. Like seriously, who can possibly be across all the details all the time? Sometimes I wonder whether we expect our political leaders to be Messiah or saviour figures, and then we berate them when they don't solve all of society's ills. You know, there's only one Messiah figure and he's called Jesus and he will bring his perfect kingdom to bear upon his return. So in the meantime, our leaders need our respect and they need our prayers, not our revulsion or our unrealistic expectations. Well, I wonder if the second thing that we can aim for um, is to, uh, well, aim for more light than heat in our political discourse. Don't you think that we've lost the ability to have respectful, intelligent discussion that neither reduces to sound bites and punchy one-liners, nor descends to personal mud-slinging match? I find this, I reckon you'll agree with me, that generally the more heat that is generated, the less light there is. And by light, I mean enlightenment, I mean information, I mean constructive discussion. I think part of the problem is these days issues are very complex. And so to speak intelligibly, intelligently on any issue requires a fair amount of study. So none of us can be across it all either. And so to counter that, we find the best catchphrase, the, the best soundbite or one liner that summarizes our natural bias that becomes our argument. Or we might, and this is almost always painful, link to an article written by an expert which supports our natural bias. And that usually doesn't help all that much because on most issues you can find an expert from uh, either side of the argument and so all that does is really push the argument back a further step. So let's think, how can we bring more light than heat? More information and not just passion. Well, perhaps, and I'm Borrowing an idea here from a fellow minister from the inner West, there's a place of passionate opinions. We ought to limit the intensity of our opinions to the level of our actual knowledge of a subject multiplied by our skin in the game. Actual knowledge is not uh, I listen to a podcast or, or I read an article on Facebook. Reasonable knowledge could mean reading, I don't know, I guess five or ten books from a variety of sources on a topic. And skin in the game means you're either directly impacted by the topic or you're actively involved in the cause. And so you limit the intensity of your opinions according to your knowledge and your skin in the game. It's not saying you can't have an opinion unless you're an expert, but it is to acknowledge that usually our opinions aren't super well informed, therefore we just dial down our intensity a little bit. Perhaps what each of us could do is to become a well-read person on a handful of issues. Can't be an expert on them all. There's just too many and they're too involved. But, But if we read widely on just a few issues, then we could comment intelligently on those issues. That would be light, not heat. And I think we would also be wary of commenting too intensely, that's heat, not light, on issues that we hadn't read much about because we would realise that most issues are complex and cannot be summarised by punchlines and sound bites. And I take it that to become well read, you'd want to read at least as many books from the opposite camp, the opposite viewpoint to that which you naturally belong or you naturally hold. So aim for more light than heat. Thirdly, know yourself. And can I say, please, we all have natural biases, don't we? We're all prone to acting, speaking out of self-interest. If you find yourself never disagreeing with a particular party or platform, it's probably a sign that you've just become a bit entangled there. If you find yourself always disagreeing, always opposing, always criticising, maybe that's a sign that you've just got a contrary spirit. Some of us will naturally jump in fully into popular opinion. Others will will naturally jump in to oppose it. Oftentimes, our view of politics is very narrowly shaped by how any issue affects us as an individual or how we can protect our little patch, how we can make a play to enlarge our little patch rather than what's in the best interests of society as a whole and especially for the most vulnerable within it. Now, I take it that is an unchristian way to think, and an unchristian way to talk, and an unchristian way to vote. And so my humble suggestion is to know yourself. Well, fourthly and lastly, we ought to be generous to one another. It could just be that people who hold an opposing view to you do so because they also value truth, justice, and the australian way they've just got a different idea of how we get there i wonder if instead of thinking that those who oppose you are automatically evil satanic fiends why not seek to understand that person and their views could you find a christian person within your forgiven heart to be generous in your posture towards them to be generous in your reading of their viewpoint to be patient rather than presumptive as you seek to understand their explanations Here is a radical idea. Could you listen with a view to understanding them rather than just responding to them? Could you assume they are of good will? Could you even look for common ground that you share? I realise it's not always possible. And when it all boils down, I'm not asking you to agree with them. I'm asking you to love them. Because loving real people is so much better although considerably harder than just having passionate opinions. So be generous. Friends, at the end of the day, we don't live in a perfect world. Our governments and leaders will never preside over a perfect world. And our social structures cannot change or renew the human heart. Only Jesus will bring a perfect kingdom. Only his spirit can regenerate our hearts but Christian people whose hearts have been changed, whose own spirits have been regenerated. We are to live lives that point to the coming kingdom that Jesus will bring, testifying to it with our words and our worship and our lives. Those citizens of the heavenly city, we give ourselves to these, our earthly cities, working for their good, serving our society caring for the most vulnerable, submitting to our rulers, sometimes exposing their flaws and frailties and worse, treating with generosity even our opponents, because hasn't God in Christ done just that for us, seeking the best for us at the very time when we were against him? Well, I think there's some suggestions there about how to do politics better i commend them to you amen and amen